Change your words, change your world. It's a scene I'm sure all of you have seen at one time or another before. A man is sitting outside a busy building and people walk past. Some people walk past fast. Some people walk past slow. Some people are chasing their kids. Some people are having a cigarette. But this man sits there. He sits on a piece of cardboard, holding another piece of cardboard. And if you read the sign, the reason becomes apparent. The sign says, I'm blind, please help. Some people walk past and throw some change, but by and large, the, the response is underwhelming. Some people walk the long way around him. Some people ignore him altogether. But then one lady steps up and she grabs the sign out of his hand, takes a marker out of her purse, writes something, and hands it back. Soon, the response is, well, overwhelming. People start throwing change so fast his jar fills up. This goes on throughout the afternoon and no longer it can fit in his jar or his hat. He's using his bag and it keeps coming. At the end of the afternoon, the same lady returns and he asks her, what did you do to my sign? She said, I wrote the same but different words. The sign that once said, I'm blind, please help. She wrote, it's a beautiful day out and I can't see. Change your words, change your world. It's a pretty catchy saying, right? But is it true? Do words really change your world? Scripture has something to say about the power of words. Proverbs 12, King Solomon says this. He says, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of wise brings healing. I think we've all experienced that before, right? We've said reckless words that have pierced and caused pain. Maybe it's angry words to a child, disrespectful words to a parent, deceitful words to a coworker, words that are maybe half-truths or no-truths at all, but told to paint ourselves in a better light. Maybe it's what we didn't say. Maybe we kept our mouth shut when we should have spoken a truth into someone's life. But on the same same, same coin, other side, we know the power that positive words can bring. A word of love from a parent to a child returned with a word of admiration from that child. A word of encouragement from a coworker, a boss, or a coach, or a classmate can change your day. Loving words written on a note card or whispered in the ear of a husband and wife, a boyfriend or girlfriend. Wise words said from a grandparent or, or someone we really respect. Change your words, change your world. I think it's true. And I think we all know the power of words. And it's one or the other. Either they pierce or they heal. But tonight we're going to look at Jesus' words. And Jesus' words just do one thing. They heal. From the cradle to the cross, all of God's words, all of Jesus' words were meant for your good. They were meant to heal you. For 2,000 years, Jesus' words haven't changed, and yet they continue to change us. Tonight, we're going to look at a lot of different words from Jesus. Words of hope, words of peace, words of promise, words of comfort, words of love, 
and words of forgiveness. Our first word from the cross comes from Luke chapter 23. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who is on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the gospel, the good news of our Lord. In a remote village in China, people would bathe by going down to the river to take a dip. First, the women would go down and then they return, and then the men would go down. On one occasion, the men were bathing in the river and one man went out into the middle of the river and was swimming and his leg began to cramp up. Then the other one, and, and soon he started to drown. Mr. Ni nee was an elderly man in the village and he saw all this taking place from the shore and so he motioned over to one young man who was an excellent swimmer to help him, to save him, to, to go in after him. But the young man didn't move. Mr. Knee became agitated. He started to yell at the young man. He said, do something, jump in, save him. But he didn't move. Mr. Knee began to hate the young man. His voice started to raise as he yelled at him to jump in and do something. And the voice of the man who was drowning began to get fainter and fainter. Until at last, what seemed like the very last time, he shouted and went under. And in a flash, the young man jumped in, grabbed him, saved him, brought him to shore, where both of them were safe and sound and alive. After the commotion all settled down, Mr. Knee went over to the young man and he started to chew him out. He started to yell at him for loving his life too much, for, for being selfish. But the reply from the young man, put Mr. Knee to silence. He said if he would have jumped in any earlier, the drowning man would have grabbed him with a death grip and they both would have drowned. He told Mr. Knee that a man who's drowning can only be saved when he stops fighting, when he ceases to try to save himself. And the same is true with you and I. The same is true with our salvation. We're all drowning in sin. We're all drowning in selfishness. And until we stop, until we stop trying to save ourselves, until we cease trying to do it by our own power, we can't be saved. Two men were crucified on the cross next to Jesus. One on his left, one on his right. Both men were criminals. Both men heaped insults 
together with those who were crucifying them at Jesus. But then all of a sudden, one man stops. And in a moment of despair, in a moment, call it desperation, or just recognizing his own position of damnation, he stopped. And in that moment, and not a second before, we get to see the amazing grace of our God. We get to see the incredible, unconditional, no-strings-attached love of our God when this man turned to Jesus and with a simple plea said, Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus told him, Because you stopped. You stopped fighting. You ceased trying to do it yourself. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And until we stop, until we stop thinking that it's our good, good deeds that get us saved, until we cease trying to think that it's our generosity, the kind acts that we do, until we stop looking at what we do and start putting our trust and our confidence in him, we're drowning. The moment we do that, the moment we look to him and stop fighting ourselves, even stop trying to push off of God to put ourselves up a little higher, promise you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' second word from the cross is from Luke chapter 23. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the gospel, the good news of our Lord. larger than life. It's an expression we use to describe people who possess personalities or characteristics that are impressive, that are outsized, that are maybe not personalities or characteristics that, well, normal people have. But every once in a while, someone who is larger than life, maybe a world leader or a celebrity, a professional athlete, an actor, they do something that catches us by surprise. They do something that makes normal people stop and be able to relate. Maybe it's, it's hearing the story of Rad Gerard, the, the young phenom, snowboarding phenom that won the United States' first Olympic gold medal this past Winter Games. Did you hear the story? The morning he won gold, his alarm roommate had to wake him up. Yeah, I've been there before, right? Or maybe it's seeing a picture of Beyonce at the last uh, music award show. 
there she is sitting in the front row next to Jay-Z, her husband, and she's got her daughter that she's trying to corral, and in one hand she has the juice box, and in the other hand she has the gummy bears, and she's trying to just keep her daughter all together. And you're like, yeah, that's kind of like me at church. Well, there's nothing that makes us be able to empathize and sympathize with larger-than-life characters quite like seeing them go through difficulty. Just about a year ago, just a few weeks before my son was born, I was sitting and I was watching the late-night host, Jimmy Kimmel, give a very emotional, tear-filled monologue as he described a situation that was difficult for him and his wife and his family. Just, just 10 days earlier, his son was born. And at three days old, his son required open-heart surgery. Larger-than-life personalities or people often do things that make us stop and feel as though we can relate to exactly what they're going through. You know, some people might say that Jesus was larger than life, but maybe, maybe that label doesn't really fit when we're comparing snowboarders and singers with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet on the cross, Jesus does something from a place of, of difficulty and, and pain. He does something that proves, after all, he really is just like us, human. There on the cross, Jesus speaks to his mother. And the words he speaks to her, they might surprise us. They might seem a little bit impersonal, a little bit cold. He doesn't call her mom, mother, or even Mary. He, he calls her woman. But he did it for a very significant reason. He did it to make a point that the most important parent-to-child relationship there wasn't the sonship that he had with her, but it was the sonship he had with his Father in heaven. There on the cross, Mary watched her baby boy die, and, and he told her to dry her eyes because he was dying on that cross as more than just her son, but her Savior from sin. Jesus would help her way more by the cross than he would from the cross. You see, on the cross, he put her in the care of his, his good friend John. And the care that he provided in doing that, it would only last a lifetime. But the care that he won for her would last an eternity. Greater love knows no man than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friends for his mother, for you, and for me. Jesus' third word from the cross is from John chapter 19. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his house. This is the gospel 
the good news of our Lord. It's not good for man to be alone. It's one of the very first things that God, the creator of the world, said to Adam after he created him. It's not good for man to be alone. So he made woman. And whether you're a male or female, it's not good for you to be alone. And I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about people in general. It's not good for us to be alone. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, it's great to be around people. And sure, we might need time to step back and maybe be by ourselves every once in a while. We all need people. God made us to be in community, to be with one another. It's why, it's why isolation is used as a punishment. Naughty children get sent to their room to be by themselves. Prisoners who do, do crimes are sent to solitary confinement. But did you know if, if solitary, if, if that isolation goes on long enough, irreversible psychological damage can take place. Depression, anxiety, fits of rage, psychosis, hallucination, these kins, things can all start if people are left by themselves long enough. Now, people need people. But even more than people needing people, people need God. You know, we don't see him, and so sometimes we forget, but he's here. What would life be like without God? Can you picture it? It's kind of an oxymoron. Life without God. Scripture tells us that in him we live, we move, and we have our being. What would it be like if there was no, no air that he created? What would it be like to wake up in the morning and not see the light? What would it be like if there was no God to give the light that he created? Now we need God. And imagine if every good gift that he gives us all of a sudden went away. Imagine if you called out to him in a prayer and, and just wanted to give thanks or just ask him to be near you and you got a busy signal or no reply. Now imagine if it's during a moment of pain or during a difficult time in your life and you get a reply back that God, God's gone. It'd be terrible. It'd be awful. In fact, that level of separation, that level of isolation, it's what we call hell. Completely cut off, completely separated from God. And yet that is exactly what Jesus willingly experienced on the cross. Forsakenness, isolation from God. But there was a method to what seemed like madness. He did it so that you would never know loneliness in this life or the life to come. Our fourth word of Jesus from the cross, Mark chapter 15. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. 
This is the gospel, the good news of our Lord. So right now, I have just two options. Either I can drink this really, really wonderful, refreshing drink, or I could not. I could set it down and I could leave it here and after a while, the carbonation's gonna go and maybe not today, but on most days, the soda would get warm and no one wants to drink a soda that's warm and has lost all of its carbonation. It's distasteful. It's unsatisfying. And oh, how he wished there was another choice. Do you think Jesus wished in his human nature that he could avoid the whip that sank centimeters into his skin? Do you think he wished he could have avoided the crown of thorns being pressed on his head? Or his father forsaking him, his friends and his family leaving his side? Oh, you bet he did. And so the night before this night, the night on which he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Lord, may this cup be taken from me. And then he added this. He said, but not my will, but your will be done. Because he knew, he knew what his father's will was. His father's will was for him to die. He knew that if he didn't drink this cup, we would never be right with God. And he knew if he didn't drink this cup, no one else would and no one else could. And so there on the cross, he took on the insults of those who persecuted him and he let it happen. There on the cross, he could have come down and crushed his enemies, but he didn't. He let it happen. On the cross, he could have called hosts of angels to come and attend to his every need, but he didn't. He let it all happen. And he did it so that he could fulfill what Scripture said, so that he could fill what God's Word said. God's Word also said this. In the 69th Psalm, it said, They will pour a cup and I will drink this vinegar, this drink of gall. And so he did it on the cross. It might seem like a pretty insignificant event that he said, I'm thirsty, and he took a drink, but he did it to fulfill everything that was written about him. You know, as Christians, as, as people who know what God's word says, how often do we think, ah, it's just insignificant. It doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference if we do this in our life or not. And yet, it's still sin. It still deserves the wrath of God. And yet, because he drank that cup, every last drop, perfectly and willingly, God's wrath isn't poured out on us. But his love and his mercy and his forgiveness is. This is the fifth word of Jesus from the cross. It comes from John chapter 19. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. This is the gospel, the good news of our Lord. There was a farmer who happened to have a friend who was a carpenter, and 
they went to church together every Sunday and after church they got together over dinner and they liked to discuss, they liked to argue and debate Bible things. The carpenter said what Jesus did on the cross is great, what he did on the cross is good, but it, it isn't enough. I still need to do something to make sure my salvation is sure. I need to do good works. The farmer said, no, you don't. It's complete. It's perfect. This is grace. It's, it's a free gift. No strings attached. The carpenter maintained his, his position. And so the farmer had an idea. He needed a, a new wooden door put on his barn anyway, so he asked his carpenter friend to make him one. And so he did. He fashioned a beautiful handcrafted barn door you know, like you see hanging in houses now, but this one was actually outside on a barn. He dropped it off at his farmer's house. And the farmer hung it up, and the next day he called his carpenter friend and said, come on, take a, take a look at, at your craftsmanship. And he came over, and as he pulled in, he, he saw his friend leaned up against the door with an axe in his hand. He said, man, what are you doing? He said, oh, I love it. I love the door. I love how it looks, but I'm going to put my own touch on it. And so he started to swing. He started to swing and swing. And despite the carpenter yelling, stop, don't, you don't need to do that, he did it anyways. He did it until the door came off the hinge. He did it until there was a hole, a gaping hole in the middle of it. And then he dropped the axe and he looked at his friend. He said, what are you doing? It was, it was perfect. It was finished. He said, exactly. He said, exactly. That's my point. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross and he said it was finished, it wasn't a cry of relief that the suffering was starting to die down and that it was almost over. No, it was a cry of victory that everything, that everything that he had ever done, the plan that started in the Garden of Eden and ended on this mount called Calvary was perfect. Everything that he had done, all the scriptures that he had, he had fulfilled were fulfilled in him and there was nothing more that needed to be done. In English, it's three words. It is finished. In Greek, it's one, tetelestai. It's a word that used to show up on bank statements and invoices of kinds that said the debt is over. It's paid in full. You can take it to the bank. That's what Jesus saying that means for you and I. You can take it to the bank. It's as good as finished. It's perfect. And yet, we try to put our own touch on it. We try to put our own flair on our salvation by adding to what Jesus did. But when we do that, we do exactly what the farmer did to the door he was given. We ruin it. We put a hole in it. Look at the front of your worship folder, if you have it. What does it say? On the very, very top, it says, Welcome to Rest. Here at the Way Church, we believe our philosophy of worship is that when you come to worship, you rest. And you receive rest that is unlike any other kind of rest you have ever experienced before. It's not like the rest you get during a good night's sleep. It's not like the rest you get when you go on vacation and kick your feet up next to the pool. It's not like rest you get from meditation, but it's spiritual rest. It's, it's spiritual rest that doesn't come from anything that you do, but it's something that God gives you. 
It's something that God gives you through his word. It's something that God gives you through his sacraments. When he takes his hand and he rips away from you all your worry, all your anxiety, all your stress, all your sins, and he replaces it with this promise. It is finished. Jesus' sixth word from the cross is from John chapter 19. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. This is the gospel, the good news of our Lord. The gospel begins with these words to describe Jesus. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Throughout Jesus' life, he proved he was the light. When little children came running up to him and interrupted his sermon, Jesus said, no, let the little children come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He proved he was goodness. He proved he was light. When people who were crippled or lame came into contact with Jesus, he gave them his time. And more than that, he gave them the gift of healing. And better still, he gave them the gift of life by forgiving their sins. He was light. He was goodness. He was healing. On the night before Jesus died, knowing that one of his disciples would betray him, knowing that another would deny him thrice, and all the rest would flee, Jesus got down on his hands and knees and he, and he washed his disciples' feet because he was light and he was goodness. From the beginning to the end, Jesus showed that everything in him was good. Humility, respect, mercy, graciousness. And that's what makes what happened so sickening. Crown of thorns is pressed onto the head of the one who welcomed the little children. The one who, who healed the crippled was made crippled as he was lashed over and over and over again with a whip. And the hands, the hands that washed his disciples' feet were pierced for our sins. When Jesus, or excuse me, when John, the friend of Jesus, wrote about Jesus' life, he said one of the most famous passages in the Bible. If you know it, you can say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But you know it just came three verses later. Well, John wrote these words. He said, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds, their deeds were evil. I think that's something that you and I can relate to. When Jesus comes into your life, he illuminates everything and, and shows the things that are impure. He shows the things that are disgusting. He shows the things that are dirty and Quite frankly, we don't want all the light on us all the time. There's certain conversations you know, we just don't want to have. There's certain sermons 
we don't want to hear at church. The certain things we like doing, we don't want to stop doing. And the reason why is because we want to do what we want to do. Our darkness licked its fingers and put out his light. And so our only hope was that the God, who is the creator of the world, would come into the darkness and create light where there was none. Kind of like Spencer's dad. Spencer grew up in a, in a broken home, which, well, was filled with utter darkness. Spencer's dad was a deadbeat who beat him, and then he ran away. His mom was abusive and an alcoholic, and when she wasn't raising a bottle, she was raising her fists. And this darkness seeped in to this young six-year-old boy named Spencer, and he became a compulsive liar, manipulative, unable to really have any kind of real relationship with anybody. But then Spencer was adopted. He was adopted by a family who loved him who showed him a love that he had never known, a love with their actions, a love with their words, a love with their discipline and their boundaries, a love with their gifts and their conversations and their entire presence of life. But it was too much. It was too much for Spencer. On one occasion, he he borrowed his dad's comb and he forgot to return it. And innocently, his his adoptive father asked him, Spencer, "Have have you seen my comb anywhere? And because he was a compulsive liar, he lied and said, no, I, I don't know where it is. Then his dad saw it in his back pocket. Their eyes met and Spencer knew that his dad knew that he lied. And so used to his biological mother's reaction, he ran away. He ran down the hall, closed the door behind him, shut off the light, hid under the bed, and waited. He waited as he heard his father's footsteps come up the stairs He gasped as he saw the door open, the light come on. He tensed up as he saw his his father kneel down and lift up the bedspread. But then his father crawled under the bed and put his gentle arms around Spencer and brought his head close to his and with some soft yet strong words whispered to him, the life you lived did not get you into this family And the life you are living now is not going to get you out of this family. I will never stop loving you. And that is what our God says to you and to me on this night. I will never stop loving you. There's a lot of us that are are living in darkness and, and don't want to run into the light of Christ There's a lot of us that would rather remain in the darkness because it's easier that way. And yet Christ doesn't wait for us to clean up our life. He doesn't wait for us to come out. Instead, his strong arms were spread on that cross for you and for me. That Friday went pitch black from noon until the third hour. It went completely black and it symbolized the darkness of our sins that sat all on Jesus Christ. And yet in just three days, light would come bursting forth from that tomb because God would raise his son from the dead. And because Christ stands in victory, sin's curse lost its grip on you and me. And that's why, and that's why I need you to come back here on Sunday morning. Because it doesn't end like this.
on your way in, you all should have received a cross, a cross made out of nails. If you didn't receive one on your way in, I want you to grab one on the way out, and I want to encourage you to hold on to it. I want to encourage you to to grip it in your hand, maybe put it in your pocket or or put it out on a table when you get at home and, and let it be a reminder to you that it was your sins that put these nails in his hands. It was your sins that put Jesus, the Savior of the world, on that cross. And it was your sins that put him in his tomb. But I want you to come back here on Sunday. And when you come back, I want you to bring this cross with you and on your way in, That tomb is going to be sitting there open and empty and I want you to take this and I want you to set it in that tomb as a reminder, a powerful reminder that no matter where you've been and no matter where you are going, you do not need to carry with you your sins, your guilt, your shame or your pain any longer because when Christ rose from that grave, all your sins stayed in it. That's why this Friday is good. And that tomb is living. Jesus' seventh word and final word from his cross. Luke 23. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and a curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight, they saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the gospel, the good news of our Lord. The burial of Jesus. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he had, was already dead, They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with strips of linen, with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a tomb 
in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of the nations, in reverence, your people have stood beneath your cross and next to your tomb to remember your death. O Christ, you who were the friend of sinners, have mercy on us. O Christ, you who are the only hope of a lost world, have mercy on us. At your cross, you allowed us here to see the ugliness, the horror, and the misery that sin, death, and Satan brought into the world and that you willingly took on yourself. Open our eyes to see that the punishment of death, the torments of hell, you suffered for us. But also, we pray that you open our eyes to see that by your death, you destroyed death. By your sacrifice, you made us right with the Father. And by the blood you shed, you bought us back to be your prized possession forever. Help us to believe that we are worth that much to you. Fill our lives with joy and peace in believing that we are truly set free from sin, sin, damnation, and that we are forgiven by your Father. Help, to, help us to give our lives in thankful love to you who gave yourself for us. Amen.